Gracious God, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for your spirit. We thank you for the cleansing work that you do. Forgive me of my sins. Forgive us as we come to you in repentance and faith. And give us ears to hear what you might say to us. In Christ's name, amen. You can be seated. Over 20 years ago, McDonald's introduced the McPizza. The McPizza. I don't know if you remember that or ever ate a McPizza. I don't think you can find them anymore. I read that the only place that you could get one is a McDonald's in Orlando, Florida, because it was a flop. And what happened was that McDonald's kind of lost sight of the heart of its business. Uh, these McPizzas were about ten times more expensive than a cheeseburger, and McDonald's is about getting bang for your buck, good value for, uh, for your money. And uh, the McPizzas also took about ten times longer to get than your Happy Meal. So McDonald's is supposed to be about fast food, and this was slowing things down. So they had to scrap the McPizza. They lost sight of uh, the, the, the real heart of their business. What is the business of the church? What's at the heart of the church? And it can be easy to lose sight. It can be easy for somebody like me to lose sight of what it really is all about. Well, it's not about business. We could say that right off the top. We're not selling a product. We're not trying to make a profit. Uh, it's not about entertainment, We're not here to amuse people or be amused ourselves. The church is not a political party, it's not to promote a particular political party. You can learn biblical principles that inform your politics, but the church is not or should not be in the business of promoting a particular political party. It's not about business. It's not about making consumers, not about being entertained. It's not about politics. What is the business of the church? Well, when we look at the first, we could call it the first church service and what follows, that's on page 8 in your bulletin. You might want to take a look at that. Page 8 in your bulletin. This is recording what happened on the day of Pentecost. Look at this last week, the first part of it, and now the, the last part of this sermon that the Apostle Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. There's a word that pops up a couple of times in this narrative. And you see it at verse 41. <clears throat> After, um, excuse me, verse 40, the closing exhortation that the Apostle Peter gives the audience. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. Save yourself. And then, in verse 47, after describing life together in the apostolic church, it comes up again. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You see that in the text? The business of the church is salvation. 
to proclaim the salvation that God offers people in Jesus Christ and then to live out together this life of salvation. And so that's what this passage is describing here. It describes how this salvation begins and how it continues in life together. Let's look at what it says here with regard to first how this life of salvation that God offers in Jesus Christ begins. It says at verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. That's where it begins. It begins with conviction. It begins with this sense that before God, I am guilty. Uh, Peter has been telling this crowd that had gathered on Pentecost that they were involved in this great act of injustice, crucifying Jesus of Nazareth, who he has explained is the Messiah. And as a result of hearing that, and as a result of the Spirit of God working on their hearts, remember this is happening on Pentecost, where the Spirit has been poured out, they were cut to the heart. They were, you could translate that, stabbed. They were deeply troubled. They were convicted of their sin, of their guilt. Before God. You know, if you take a, uh, a hard stone and you put it in a bowl of marinade, that liquid is not going to penetrate that hard stone. But if you take a piece of meat that's been tenderized and you put it in that same bowl and that marinade, then that's going to penetrate that meat. That's how it is with the salvation that God offers us, that God offers people. He pours out his grace. He pours out his salvation offer. But our hearts have to be broken to receive it. Our hearts have to be willing to recognize that we need this salvation. That's what God does in people's lives. He replaces a heart of flesh or a heart of stone with a heart of flesh. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. They were cut to the heart. That's where it begins. I wonder if that's happened in your life. That you've been cut to the heart. That your heart has been broken. That you realize that before God you're guilty. I wonder if you can look back on your life and see times when that has gripped you. The sense that I have not loved God with all that I am. And I've not loved my neighbor as myself. That's a painful surgery, but it's necessary for healing. That's how God's salvation begins to penetrate a life. So they were convicted of sin. And then Peter gives them a couple of action items. They say, what shall we do? Those who've been cut to the heart. Repent. And be baptized in the name of Jesus, he says. Starts with repentance. That's an appropriate response to this sense of guilt before God. Repentance means a, a change of outlook. A change of mind that 
leads to a change of life. It is, it is uh, a revolution in one's, one's thinking. And here, in this context, Peter's calling them and has been calling them to change their mind in terms of how they understand who Jesus of Nazareth was. He wasn't just a miracle worker. He was the Messiah. He wasn't just a failed Messiah. He's the risen Messiah. Understand who Jesus Christ is. Their mind needs to be changed about who Jesus is. Repentance is a change of mind. I like another definition of repentance that's more positive. It is this. I just came across it this week. Joining your mind and heart to the mind and heart of God. So you've been thinking one way. Your affections have been going in one direction. But now you began to join your mind with the mind of God. You want to know what God thinks. You want to think God's thoughts. You join your heart to the heart of God. You want to understand what God feels, what pleases God, uh, what displeases God. It's a change. This is not something that comes naturally, and it's not something that we never graduate beyond. We always, as Christians, are living a life of repentance, seeking more and more to join our minds and hearts to the mind. God. But that's a key ingredient to salvation. And then he says, be baptized in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. So that means that when you're baptized in the name of Jesus, that you are standing with Jesus, that you are claiming allegiance to Jesus. To be baptized in the name of Jesus, especially in this context in the first century, these are Jews. They're saying, okay, I'm going to join with this group of people who are proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah. I'm going to be recognized by my allegiance to Jesus. And that happens through baptism. Remember, there was a lady who was coming to our church years ago who was from India and uh, was raised as a Hindu. And she, she started to believe in Jesus. She started to read the scriptures. She was very devout in that, but... There was a tension between her and her family over this because they were still practicing Hindus. And so she was wrestling with this. Should I be baptized? Because in her context, that was it. That was a mark that I belong to Jesus. And that could mean a definitive break with her family once they knew that she had been baptized. So that happens still today. But baptism is a... A mark that we belong to him, an expression of our allegiance to him. And then Peter says, as a result of turning to Christ in these ways, you see, it, it, as a result of expressing your faith in Christ through repentance and baptism, he says, this is what God will give you. Here is a description of the gift of salvation. This is a wonderful description. Forgiveness of sins. And the gift of the Holy Spirit. That as a result of trusting in Christ, you will know, you can know that your sins are forgiven, that God forgives you. And you can know that the Spirit of God dwells within you. What a precious gift of salvation. 
You can know that you're forgiven, that you're right with God now and forever, that you'll be in the presence of God forever, because your sins have been forgiven through Christ. You can have fellowship with God now because the Spirit of God has taken up residence in your life, and you can know that you will be in the presence of God forever. This is a great gift of salvation. This is a wonderful description of it. Forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. You can have that assurance when you come to Christ that you've been forgiven and that the Spirit of God dwells within you. Wonderful gift. Are you thankful for that today? I'm forgiven. The Spirit of God lives within me. I have fellowship with the living God. Do you want that today? It can be yours as you turn to Christ, just as this audience did. Now, remember who this audience was. These were people, Peter has said, who misunderstand or misunderstood who Jesus of Nazareth was. There was evidence, the signs, the miracles that he performed, but they misunderstood who he was. They did not know he was the Messiah. They had rejected him as the Messiah. They, at the beginning of Acts 2, we see that some of the people in the crowd were mocking the Christians, mocking the disciples. They said, these guys are drunk with wine because the Spirit of God was being poured out so powerfully upon them and they were offering up praises to God in strange tongues. And the crowd said, mockingly, they've hit the bottle at nine o'clock in the morning. What's wrong with these people? So this is a group of people who misunderstood who Jesus is, who mocked Christians. And yet Peter, and they've been involved in a grave sin, this injustice of crucifying Jesus. And yet Peter is offering them this salvation. That's important for us to hear in our day today. There are people in our culture who misunderstand who Jesus is. They don't know the gospel. They don't know that what we teach is that you're not saved based on your good works, but based on the good work that Jesus has done. They oftentimes dismiss or mock Christianity and Christians. They, like us, have been involved in sin. And are guilty before God because of it. And yet this same offer of God's grace and salvation is what the church proclaims to everyone. And so we must be persistent in maintaining our focus on this. That anyone who responds to this can have the forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit dwelling within. We don't give up on anyone. We don't stop proclaiming this. Well, then, that's how this salvation begins. And then we see how it's lived out, how it continues in the life of these new disciples. Added that day were about 3,000 souls. Now what? Now what are they going to do? What a revival. What an ingathering. Verse 42 tells us what they did. Verse 42 explains how this life of salvation is carried out and continues. They devoted themselves, 
That means they were steadfast in these things. That means that they were like a soldier who is loyal to his or her commanding officer. That's how this word is used sometimes in the Greek. They were devoted. That means they had to say yes to this and no to other things. They were devoted to this. The apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. John Stott, in his book on the church, says that the, the early church was a learning church, it was a caring church, and it was a worshiping church. And you see it there at verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Why? Well, because the apostles were Jesus' authorized teachers. Um, he, we saw in our gospel reading that he came to his disciples and he taught them. The risen Christ came to his disciples and he taught them how to read scripture in light of his person and work. And that he was the key to it all. The law and the prophets. So Jesus spent time during his resurrection Period, his post-resurrection appearances, teaching disciples. He went to the apostles. We know this. We're familiar with this passage in Matthew 28 when he went to the 11 apostles and he commissioned them to go out and he commanded them to teach everything I have commanded you. They are the accredited teachers. They are the authorized teachers. You know, if you go to an expert, whether it's a teacher or a lawyer or a doctor, want to know what's their accreditation, what gives them the right to speak authoritatively. And the apostles are Jesus's authorized teachers. And so to understand the salvation that God has given us in Jesus Christ, we need to understand what the apostles say about that. To understand how to live out this life, we need to understand what the apostles say about it. Everything must be measured against that, and we have that teaching in the New Testament. And so we are to carry on like these early disciples, devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching. And then it says to the fellowship, um, the word there, if you've been around in the church for any length of time, you've probably heard this word in the Greek, koinonia, koinonia. It means to hold things in common or to have things in common. They had a common fellowship. Their common fellowship was based on a common salvation. Salvation they received in Jesus Christ. This common fellowship manifested in, in, in some dramatic ways in their sharing of their very, their, their very life and their possessions. And so it says at verse 44, Now all those who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And they were breaking bread in their homes together, and they were worshiping together in the temple. And there was this outpouring of a shared life and generosity. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from the character of the God who saved them. The salvation that they received is a work of incredible generosity. It's the abundance, the outflowing of God's love and mercy. They've received that, and then that begins to affect the way they live with others. The spirit of generosity and fellowship. They've received fellowship with God, and they begin to fellowship 
with one another. This, by the way, is not communism. I was speaking with somebody who came to the church a couple of, uh, well, it's been over a month, I think, this young man who was just interested in our church, and he made a remark that he was a communist, and so were the early Christians. And he referenced Acts 2 because they had sold their property. And the point is, is that the state is not telling them to sell their property. This is volunteer. And not only that, it's clear that it wasn't everything that they gave up because they were meeting in each other's homes. Some of them still had homes to meet together. No, it's not communism, but it is an example of the radical change that can happen in a person's life when salvation begins to be poured into their life. They want to reflect generosity and fellowship with others. Friends, this is such a need today, isn't it? That we have fellowship with one another. And I'm grateful for the people in our congregation who have their eyes on that. They keep their eyes on that ball. We need to have fellowship together. There are people in this congregation who are really attuned to that. It can fall off my radar because my head oftentimes is stuck in the books. But we're meant to live life together. And that's especially important in our culture today as more and more people are facing loneliness. You know, before the pandemic, if you looked at social statistics on loneliness, it was high. And now they say after the pandemic, some things that I read this week, one thing coming out of a professor from Yale University, another thing coming out of our Surgeon General, that the percentage of Americans who say that they are lonely is like 58 to 60 percent. And on the younger generation, like Generation Z, 18 to 22, it's higher. That the people who are struggling with, why is that? Well, you could think of a number of reasons. But one reason is, um, well, if you go to a restaurant and sometimes you look around and you see a husband and wife and a child sitting there and they're not talking to each other. They start off by putting screens in front of their faces and looking at that. So there's these cultural forces that have pulled us apart. That's just one example. And what the church can offer to people is fellowship. Knowing others and being known. And it's a wonderful gift that we have to offer. And it comes back to a God who's a God of fellowship. And then it says the breaking of bread and prayers. This involved a meal together. And in the context of the meal, the Eucharist. Remembering Christ's death for our salvation. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. How is the remembrance of Christ's salvation carried on in the community? Well, one is through the breaking of bread, which we do every Sunday. How is the presence of Christ made tangible in the context of the community? The breaking of bread we are confronted with. We are offered, I should say, the presence of Christ in a tangible way as we come to the table in faith. A learning church, a caring church, a worshiping church. And the result is this, verse 47. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I would take month by month those who were being saved. The Lord added to Church of the Resurrection. I would take quarterly. 
Every quarter, Church of the Resurrection saw that the Lord was adding to their numbers those who were being saved, not just people who were transferring from other churches, but those who were being saved, who understood this grace and mercy God was offering. I would take a year, okay? <laughs> the Lord added to the numbers daily, every year, those who were being... This is a great challenge to us, and it's a challenge to me. And the only way to get to this place is to rely upon the Holy Spirit. The Spirit was being poured out and the Spirit was at work. And the only way to access the Spirit's work like this is through prayer. The word devoted there that's used is the same word that's used at the beginning of Acts when it talks about they were devoting themselves to prayer for the Spirit to come. And so that's what we must do. That's what I must do. If we care to see the Lord adding to our numbers daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, yearly, however he sees fit, it's going to take us praying, praying for the Spirit to do this kind of work among us. And let me just conclude with this from A.C. Dixon. A.C. Dixon said this, when we depend on organization, we get what organizations can do. When we depend on education, we get what education can do. When we, be, when we depend on men and women, we get what they can do. But when we depend on prayer, we get what prayer can do. This is what prayer can do. This is what the Spirit can do. Let's pray about that. Heavenly Father, I do pray that you would help us to take time, even this week, to pray that your spirit would be at work powerfully in our midst in the proclamation of the gospel and living the gospel out in lives of fellowship and generosity. I pray that we would pray for your spirit to be at work in us to live into these truths for the glory of Christ. And it's in his name we all pray. Amen.